1: This is the New Books Network World Affairs Podcast. My name is Jeffrey Gordon. I'm a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Virginia. And today I'm talking to Richard Lachman. He is a professor of sociology at the State University of New York at Albany. Um, and we're going to be talking about his book, First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, uh, Elite Politics and and um, the Decline of of, of Hegemony. Um, Much of Professor Lachman's career has been spent investigating how the structure of elite cooperation and conflict affects macro social outcomes like state formation and the rise of capitalism. Um, Richard, how did you become interested in hegemonic decline and how does this work build on uh, some of the previous work that you've done?
0: Well, I became interested because living in the United States, I'm observing it, seeing the United States less and less able to offer a coherent strategy to dominate the world and much more of U.S. foreign policy and also economic policy abroad and at home is shaped by the ability of various elites to appropriate resources and to shape policy on specific issues to benefit them. And you know, then also a seeing the United States unable to win in Iraq and Afghanistan raised this question of you know, how could a country that had an unprecedented edge in military technology, the ability to project force around the world, and could not win wars against two small and weak enemies. I mean, if we look at the Vietnam War, the first great defeat for the United States, this was against a you know fairly well populated country that received substantial support from the other superpower in China with Iraq and Afghanistan. they were on their own, and there wasn't you know there wasn't a nearby government that you know was able to organize armies and the u s still lost so you know all-
1: right and in Afghanistan had uh experienced two decades of civil war and was had a very weak state and was very fragmented. And then Iraq, our sanctions regime had ensured that, um, they would remain weak and yet we were still unable to achieve our political and military objectives, at least the ones that have been publicly stated there. Um, so, uh, um, this is really uh, really strikes me as two books in one, right? A two for one deal, where um, the first half of the book is uh, looking over the course of of European imperial history and examining um, why uh, some militaries, uh, strong military empires, were unable to translate that um, military and geopolitical power into. Um, hegemony in terms of setting the rules of the game for the for the global economy and the global political system, and um, and also looking at the countries that were able to achieve that level of global hegemony and how uh, they ultimately um, unraveled over time. Um, uh, so what I want to ask you about is, um, uh, first of all, I think that your your framework uh, for thinking about how imperialism shapes patterns of elite conflict in the metropole is one of uh, uh, a really significant contribution for this book. Because when I read, for example, political science research on the emergence of democracy or or the construction of modern states in Europe, these are very internalist stories, stories about um elite conflicts that uh you never hear about what role the colonies play in these processes and so i wanted to ask you um what are the factors that uh, uh what are the um, factors of imperialism that shape elite conflict in the metropole well
0: you know, the the first basic one is that enormous wealth poured into Metropole, you know, from their empires. And this created new elites. The people who went abroad to staff these colonies to run the trading companies, you know, weren't the great landed aristocrats. If you were a wealthy Dutchman or Briton or Spaniard or, you know, French you know, why would you go to the ends of the earth where you had a very high chance of getting a disease and dying or getting killed in warfare? So the people went, you know, weren't part of the central elite, but they got so rich that it turned them into essentially new elites, and they had enormous leverage over the state. And then, of course, the domestic economies were transformed by the wealth that was pouring in. So that's the first way in which imperialism transformed domestic elites. And of course, it operated in different ways in France and Spain on the one hand, and the Netherlands and Britain on the other. And that's part of what I try to work out in this book, why imperialism didn't create the possibility of hegemony for Spain and France, but it you know, was essential to the Netherlands and Britain's rise to dominance.
1: Right. And um, and you talk about two dimensions of variation of elite structure across empires. And this, these two dimensions um, um, shape elite interactions and elite conflicts. Um, uh, could you uh, talk about these two dimensions, which are colonial elite influence on metropolitan economies and polities and colonial elite autonomy for Metro metropolitan officials.
0: Yes. That, you know, either of these are ones that can disrupt the possibility of hegemony. If there's a high level of elite conflict in the metropole, then it becomes impossible for the imperial power to, come up with a coherent strategy and to carry out that strategy in a way to achieve and maintain hegemony. And on the other hand, if the elites in the colonies have a high degree of autonomy, then they're able to hold on to the resources. It doesn't flow into the metropole and doesn't provide the wealth that's needed, you know, both to finance wars and a large enough military establishment to assert hegemony and also to finance economic development at home. So, you know, looking at especially Spain, it had the largest empire. Enormous wealth was generated in the Americas, but because those elites had so much autonomy, very little of it made its way back to Spain. It did much more to make Italy, France, the Netherlands, and Britain wealthy than it did to make spain wealthy
1: right and uh uh complete this uh elite autonomy of colonial um uh settlers in particular uh is ultimately the cause of the conflict that led to u.s independence right because uh, it was conflict between the metropolitan officials and the settlers over who would pay for defense and um the rights to, to trade with other empires for settlers that um were two of the biggest reasons that settlers ultimately decided to form their own republic right um so that's one way in which uh um the colony can uh the colonies can undermine um, um elite cooperation in the center and undermine hegemony uh and colonial elite influence, what are the factors that shape the influence of colonial elites on the metropolitan economy or politics?
0: Well, it's part of it is they're linked to already existing metropolitan elites. So, you know, if we go to the example of the American colonies, which really for Britain was the anomaly, it was the one successful rebellion until the 20th century, and that grew out of the way in which the american colonies developed that it happened around the time of the english civil war so you had very high level of elite conflict within britain really unprecedented in britain's history you know after that and you know that meant that you had rival elites competing for political influence for economic relations with american elites and that created a level <clears throat> of autonomy for the american elites that was much greater than that of colonial elites elsewhere in the british empire and you know so there are various ways that colonial elites can become autonomous you know in the case of spain and france it was partly domestic elite conflict and was partly the way in which You know rulers created dominance at home it was essentially by giving elites control over sectors of the state sectors of the economy and that then was translated into the way in which spain and france created their colonies
1: right so a low level of of essentially uh autonomy from economic elites and power over economic elites at early stages of state formation became kind of locked in and self-reinforcing over time in Spain's case, um, where um, the need to uh, um, essentially give uh, these economic elites um, all sorts of incentives and autonomy in order to entice them to invest in the colonial endeavors Uh, became locked in and reinforced over time and, and prevented them from prevented the crown from regaining control over the colonies and extracting more resources for themselves from the colonies. Um, Yes, that's exactly uh, right. Right. And so um, uh, what are you list four factors that prevent a polity from achieving global hegemony? Uh, what are those four factors? I
0: mean, well, I mean, two of them we've just talked about one's mm-hmm. the high level elite conflict within the metropole, and the other the high level of colonial elite autonomy from the metropole. Another, which is quite rare is if you have a unitary elite that dominates in the metropole, so there were two cases that you know really differed from the others: one was the Napoleonic Empire and the other was the Nazi empire and in every other way they were organized. So you'd think they could achieve hegemony. There wasn't a high level elite conflict in the metropole. There wasn't autonomy by colonial elites. And then the fourth factor is whether there's the infrastructural capacity to control colonial elites. And, you know, this notion of infrastructural capacity is one that Michael Mann especially gives attention to. And that's, you know, does the metropole have communication networks, bureaucracy, you know, the sorts of armed the you know, sort of tools that are needed to actually reach into colonies and find out what's going on, extract resources and exert control. And, you know, some early, you know, if we look at ancient empires, they lack that, they just weren't able to do that. But with modern ones, they generally all are able to. The S- Spanish empire is one where it's, you know, somewhat weaker than the others. But if we look at Napoleon and the Nazis, they had the infrastructure. They didn't have problems with elite conflict at home or elite autonomy abroad. The reason they didn't achieve hegemony was that they had just a single unitary elite. And the way in which that elite you know, maintained its control Made, didn't allow for a sort of differentiation of financial leads, didn't allow for the sort of innovative policies that were needed to develop hegemony, that everything was oriented around that single lead maintaining its control, and that disrupted the plans and strategies that were needed to build it. Globally right. So,
1: and so and so would you say that in these cases where a unitary elite achieves domination, could it be that this unitary elite um, uh, monopolizes power at the expense of elites who might have complementary forms of power resources that maybe that unitary elite doesn't have? To uh, yeah,
0: yeah, It's partly uh, that and then you know, partly also that, you know, they're not open to. Considering new strategies that might be needed to counter rising powers or rival powers
1: right because because these powers are embedded in an international system that's always changing in response to the actions of this um, of of this particular power so uh, the international system changed changed in response to the expansion of the nazis or of the, of the napoleonic empire and uh without any kind of um uh, elite competition or elite conflict or the rise of new elites with different ideas and power resources it was difficult to adjust to these changing geopolitical realities
0: yes i mean this is you know the paradox that you know with any of these dominant powers i mean they should be able to maintain their dominance They have a bigger military, they have more economic resources. So the question is, you know, what disrupts that? Why do they lose out to a weaker power? And, you know, the answer is one of these four factors either have to be present and prevent them from achieving hegemony in the case of France or Spain or, you know, the Napoleonic Empire or the Nazis, or one of these factors has to reemerge. And that is what then accounts for. The hegemonic decline of the Netherlands, Britain, and today the United States.
1: Right, and it and it's uh, so difficult to maintain hegemony because um, uh, imperial expansion and and um, the dynamism involved in in creating hegemonic power it can either create so much elite conflict that the state becomes paralyzed and unable to adopt new policies because of different visions and different political projects that are kind of locked in a stalemate with each other, or else one elite just monopolizes power entirely. And as we discussed, locks out uh, other elites who might have different power resources or or ideas about how to um, um, change direction in response to changing external conditions. Um, so in that sense, hegemony uh, uh, eventually kind of is, has a self-undermining aspect or a negative feedback aspect, right?
0: Yeah. Um, although, yeah. although the timing varies. You know, with the Netherlands mm. and the U.S., it, you know, it was relatively fast. And, you know, in the case of Netherlands, under a century. In the case of the United States, half a century. While with Britain, it sustained its hegemony for close to two centuries. So it's, you know, and this is one of my disagreements with the world system analysts, you know, Wallerstein, especially Iriggy, who I think's done the best work on hegemonic decline. That they see, you know, a fairly set cycle, and that the timing of each of the hegemonies is similar. And you know, I think, you know, they're wrong about that for Britain, that it, you know, actually lasted through two of their cycles. Yeah, happy. the
1: the the vast differences in the the length of hegemony is certainly challenging for these kind of rigid cyclical rise and decline kind of yeah. theories. Um, okay. So um, we've, you've mentioned Spain uh, in passing a little bit, but I would like to direct our attention to your chapter on uh, Spain and the Ancien regime pre-revolutionary France. And um, these were uh, vast empires uh, with holdings on on several continents um, and they both had uh, enormous fiscal resources f- for their uh, um, for their time period um, but they were unable to turn these empires into um, a global hegemony in the sense of being able to set the rules of the game uh, uh, so to speak um What were the specific factors that um, prevented these uh, empires from becoming hegemonies?
0: Well, the main one in both their cases was the way in which national power was built up. That the monarchs, in essence, you know, went to regional elites and said, "You know, you can control." In the case of Spain, you can control your province. In the case of France, they set up rival elites in each province and let them control things in return really just for their offering allegiance to the monarch. And so that meant that these elites were able to maintain control of most of the tax revenues. One of the errors that, you know, lots of historians and social scientists make is that they look at the sum total of revenue that comes in in taxes, and they assume, you know, this is an account that kings can spend in any way that they want. And, you know, certainly for France and Spain, that wasn't the case at all. Most of those revenues remained in the hands of provincial elites, and there was relatively little money that kings were able to spend. So if you have, you know, these studies that compare revenue of, you know these different states and try to use that as a proxy for their ability to field armies you get very mistaken results and you know in terms of the empire with Spain's American empire the percentage of revenue that made it back to Spain dropped off very quickly i mean even at the beginning it was less than half and by the time you get to the 17th century we're talking about 10% by the time you get to the 18th century we're talking about under 5% so you know, holding these colonies really didn't do anything for Spain fiscally.
1: Right. And I think that that's a really, uh, important and valuable point for, um, thinking about how to do, um, cross national overtime research, uh, that looks at, uh, how states, um, uh, gather revenue, um, Uh, historically, because I see papers in economic history, for example, that do exactly what you talk about, um, using tax revenue as a proxy for state capacity, and they don't uh, pay attention to the ways in which these pre-modern empires and patrimonial states um, uh, had different abilities to uh, spend that revenue and turn that revenue into power and, uh, 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 decisive, um, um, influence in their territories because it, it wasn't controlled by any kind of central ex- exchequer as, uh, it often is in modern states. Um, uh, so, um, the first capitalist hegemon is the Netherlands. Uh, what were the factors that allowed the Netherlands to, Turn their uh, um, land base and, most importantly, commercial empire into uh, the first example of capitalist hegemony.
0: Well, it was this sort of elite structure that was created through their war for independence against Spain, and you know, also in the you know multi-century process of trying to reclaim land from the sea that there had to be a high level of elite cooperation. There weren't strong hereditary elites, so the clergy wasn't a big factor in the Netherlands. The landed elite wasn't that important. The key elites were these commercial ones, and they had systems of cooperation. They had what were called contracts of correspondence, which were literally these written agreements where elite families and elite corporate bodies worked out how to divide revenues, how to rotate political offices with each other, and that gave them the ability to coordinate resources, coordinate forces, and gave them a huge advantage in the initial rush to take colonies. So the Dutch were able to send out ships in harmony, raise taxes to build a Navy and in that way, grab trading ports around the world. And, you know, that gave them the initial edge. And because there was stability at home, that allowed Amsterdam to become a safe harbor a banking and exchange center for all of Europe, which was the other base of its hegemony.
1: Right. And so, um, Uh, What were the the factors that ultimately undermined this uh, uh, Dutch hegemony? Um, You say it lasted about, what, 70 or so years, um, right? Um, What were the the factors that ultimately undermined this hegemony?
0: Well, these contracts of correspondence that were so helpful in the early period of mobilizing resources to defeat the Spanish, to build dikes, to you know, move quickly to grab trade routes and colonies, then created rigidity that these elites had a constant share of resources and power. And when there was a need to reallocate resources or to take action that would be helpful in the long term to the Netherlands position as a hegemon, but would have harmed certain elites in the short term, or perhaps undermine them permanently, they had veto power, They able to block things. So, you know, again, with this comparison, you know, the Netherlands had more naval ships than Britain. But what that ignores is the fact that they were seven separate navies, there was a navy for the Dutch East India Company for the Dutch West India Company, five different provinces had their own navies. And if one of them felt that they weren't going to gain something or they could actually lose something from a particular war or battle. They just held their Navy out. So these seven navies, after the initial grab for trade routes and colonies, weren't fighting in harness. So that's how Britain with fewer ships than the Netherlands could win because Britain sent all of their ships out together and the Dutch ships were involved in different projects and not coordinating with each other. And similarly, it was hard to raise taxes because any one province or Amsterdam within Holland could veto an increase. They all had to agree. And if they didn't, nothing happened.
1: Right. And so this is another example of a way in which a quantitative indicator of a state's power resources uh, can mask or or um, make it difficult to understand qualitative differences in the capacity to deploy those power resources between different States. Um, and also this is another, uh, example of how, um, a political settlement that is good for eliciting, um, elite cooperation during early periods of state or empire building, um, constrain the ability to change course, uh, once other states in the international system begin responding to, um, um, the emergence of this empire or state, uh, and that can ultimately make it difficult to respond to these challenges that other states, uh, uh create. Um, and so Britain was the longest lasting of the capitalist hegemons, as you say, almost 200 years. Um, what was the key to British, uh, uh longevity?
0: Well, that elites didn't enjoy a high level of autonomy, that they had to work with each other through parliament, through local government. And so if there was an interest for a majority of elites to change national strategy to increase taxes, they were able to force that through. And, you know as the sort of settlement that came after the English Civil War and then the Glorious Revolution undercut the autonomy of county elites, of the clergy, and so, you know, they were all thrown together into Parliament where they needed to negotiate and where, you know, a holdout could be overruled. And that then carried over into the way in which the empire was created. And, it was controlled from the center. Colonial elites didn't have a great degree of autonomy, and we see that with the British East India Company. I mean, India was by far the most valuable colony and generated the most wealth. People who you know, went there with the East India Company and got rich came home and were able to buy huge estates and become major political players, but they didn't have autonomy. And when the moment came where became clear that the East India Company was losing its capacity to maintain control over India, wasn't sending enough resources back to Britain, the company was nationalized. Parliament was able to eliminate its autonomy and turn India from a company colony into a full-fledged British colony.
1: Right. And so um, the state is able to discipline capital. And and uh, during these key moments, uh, when it appears that the actions of um, elites in, in the empire are threatening to undermine the geopolitical position, um, they had the ability to uh, rein those elites in and uh, change course in terms of policy and turn a weakness in the case of India during the mutiny into a strength in the later 19th century and and uh, the benefits uh, in terms of fiscal and military power resources that uh, India elicited for, for the British Empire during that period. Um, what ultimately caused British hegemony to unravel?
0: Well, it was that Increasing, yeah, I mean, this is, I think, you know, where we get a lot from Arrighi's analysis of financialization, that, you know, these elites increasingly, you know, we're trying to, you know, maintain their privilege over generations, and they, you know, because they couldn't, you know, take state offices and turn them into private or familial property, they their resources, you know, into, you know, what inevitably is the most dynamic sector in a hegemon, the financial one. And so they, you know, then became, you know, quite conservative. They were concerned with, you know, minimizing taxes. So when we get into the later 19th century, the British military becomes starved of resources, not because the British economy is doing badly, it's doing very well, but because of an unwillingness to pay significant taxes so that the tax rate in Britain becomes lower than that of its geopolitical rivals and firms lose their dynamism. They you know become increasingly controlled either by banks or families, you know, are able to gain you know, gain or keep permanent control over the companies that they founded. And so you don't get the Sort of investment in new technology that's needed and the British firms get overtaken by the two dynamic economic powers, the Germany and the United States, which then become the innovators in technology and corporate and in corporate structure.
1: Right and you also talk about uh the role that settler colonialists played in preventing the UK from implementing reforms uh uh policy changes that would adjust to the rise of these new industrial powers uh what role did the settler colonialists play in this
0: Well they you know as these settler colonies became more wealthy and as Britain you know was you know after the American Revolution that you know British government and British elites, you know, were continually obsessed with preventing another revolution in the other settler colonies. And the way they did that was, you know, essentially conceding enormous autonomy and not asking very much of the settler colonies. So they became money losers for Britain. And, you know, there obviously were some gains because they were, you know, part of a, you know, imperial market, but you know, they weren't the sort of resource generators that India was. And increasingly, these settler colonies were able to influence British politics, that there were economic relations, familial relations between elites in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa and British elites. And so they were able to drive British foreign policy. And you got foolish ventures like the South African war that you know Britain met you know technically it won but you know while it won the war it lost the peace that you know in order to end the war it had to make such concessions to the settlers in South Africa that you know they ended up getting everything that they'd asked for in the beginning except formal independence and the same thing was true of the other settler colonies and then you had in the late 19th century the scramble for Africa, which was a total money loser for Britain as a whole, but created enormous wealth for a few entrepreneurs who, you know, above all Cecil Rhodes, who, you know, then used part of their wealth to buy influence in British Parliament and through newspapers.
1: And through, uh, Scholarships, for example, yeah. as well. Right? Oh yeah, um, yeah. Uh, um, all that sounds somewhat familiar in our our, our current environment of uh, uh, people like that buying buying influence in the political system in order to serve their narrow interests. Um, and so now transitioning and talk about the U.S.'s post World War II period of hegemony. Um, you talk about. Uh, You start off this section of the book by talking about the post-war consensus and um, the 89th Congress, which uh, just in the course of two years passed a a whole load of of policies that uh, changed immigration, civil rights, um, um, social services that Americans were entitled to. Um, what were the f- foundations of this post-work uh, political consensus, and how did it unravel?
0: Well, the consensus was, you know, it, it, it was based in the United States' enormous advantage at the end of World War II, as the one power that you know, hadn't been destroyed by war, and you know, in fact, at the end of the war was wealthier than at the beginning of the war, that economically World War II was fantastic. For the United States, and because of its dominant position, it was able to shape trade relations to its advantage, to make the dollar the world currency, which you know even today provides enormous advantages for the United states and you had a elite structure where it was essentially f- created in the New Deal that you know part of what the New Deal reforms tried to do was ensure that you couldn't get the sort of financial manipulation that led to the stock market crash and the Great Depression. So sectors of the American economy were, in essence, divided up, that you had national level firms and also local firms. So you had national banks and local banks, you had, you know, if we look at television and radio, you had national networks, but Almost all the stations had to be owned locally and have a great deal of locally produced content, especially news content. And so what that did was it prevented the emergence of narrow, powerful elites that were able to control entire sectors or dominate national politics. And this came undone beginning in the 1970s with the weakening of antitrust and the big turning point was under Nixon. And from that point on, you know, all administrations, whether Republican or Democratic, essentially had a hands-off approach. They challenged very few of these mergers. And so you got mergers of national firms, but more importantly you got national firms buying up local firms or local firms merging with each other and becoming national firms. That's especially what happened in banking that many of the largest banks today are not the old New York based you know, financial centers, but rather these gigantic banks that were the product of hundreds of local banks merging and buying each other out. And so what that did was it eliminated the local elites who could had an interest in maintaining the New Deal architecture, which... Carved out parts of markets for them and protected them from competition by national firms, and so you got this sort of ratcheting effect. You got some mergers that eliminated enough local firms so that then you could push through regulatory changes that allowed even more mergers, and that eliminated more local firms, and then eventually it culminates with you have the hollowing out of you know the local side of these industries, and then you got finally the passage of legislation that, you know, allowed national firms to totally dominate each sector. So at the end of the Clinton administration, you had the, you know, so-called, you know, banking and telecommunication reform acts. And, you know, the reform was basically to eliminate all the New Deal regulations and allow banks to engage in whatever manipulations that they wanted and to have telecommunications concentrated into very few firms.
1: Right. And um, at, at the same time that this wave of deregulation was going on, there was also uh, a weakening of of labor unions. And uh, what impacted the weakening? First of all, what drove the weakening of labor unions? And second of all, what impacted um, the erosion of union power have on the erosion of the post-war consensus?
0: Well, I mean, labor unions were the biggest advocates for you know, having social welfare benefits and for ensuring that there was this heavy regulatory state that limited what capitalists could get away with. I mean, capitalists never liked unions. I mean, what divisions they had were between the ones who thought unions should be fought without any compromise and the ones who, especially in some of the you know largest firms who decided that unions were here to stay and they had to deal with them and while they didn't like it they had to recognize union power and reach some sort of accommodation and you know so the war against unions was you know basically a half century process you know from the, you know after the huge increase in unions in the 30s and 40s it took to the 80s before you started getting real declines in the percentage of workers were in unions. And, you know, there were various factors that, you know, had a delayed effect. You know, one of the key ones was obviously in the 50s, the Taft-Hartley Act, which passed, you know, in this narrow moment, this one two-year period when the Republicans controlled Congress during the Truman administration. And then along with Southern Democrats had enough votes to put the law through. And it in various ways made it harder for unions to organize. It also crucially Allowed employers to sue unions if they were wildcat strikes, which then gave union leaders an interest in trying to suppress local-level militancy. But this took decades to really have an effect on union membership. And then, you know, another big factor is one that was self-inflicted by the unions when, in the 50s, they purged communist organizers who'd been the best and most effective organizers in the 30s and 40s. So essentially. Unions, you know, destroyed their ability to organize workers and to expand.
1: Right. Um, so you have these dual movements of the decline of unions and uh, the rise of the financial sector, deregulation, um, all all occurring at the same time, more or less, um, We'll talk more about financialization in a minute, but at the same time that all this is going on in the economy, the U.S. is also trying to fight the Cold War, and um, militarily, um, we had the war in Vietnam, and um, we, that was uh, arguably the first of many example of several examples of the U.S. Um, losing a war against an opponent who we have vastly more material resources than uh and so and you talked about how this was one of your uh big puzzles starting out of how the us is unable to turn this massive advantage in terms of material power resources into um, military victories um what are the factors that uh prevent the us from translating their power resources into victories?
0: Well, I mean, the main one is that most of the resources are wasted. If you look at the military budget, most of the weaponry that's bought is totally inappropriate for the sort of counterinsurgency wars that the U.S. actually fights. It's still these high-tech weapons that are designed to fight fantasy wars with a Soviet Union that hasn't existed for 30 years or to fight a war with China. And so the question is, you know, why is that what the money spent on? You know, why, despite decade after decade of understanding that the wars the U.S. in fact would fight are counterinsurgency ones, is the U.S. so poorly prepared for that? And that has to do with the way in which the U.S. military is structured and especially with the ways in which officers make their careers that officers specialize in particular weapon systems. So, you know, if you're an officer in the Air Force, and you learn to command fighter jets that are designed to take on fighter jets from the Soviet Union or China, you can have a great career because these, you know, jets are going to be produced decade after decade. And They'll never be, you know, but if they're canceled, that's it. Your career is ruined. It's virtually impossible to transfer from one, you know, sort of weapon system to another. If you decide you're going to make your career in counterinsurgency, that's much chancier. These counterinsurgency wars come and go. You know, they're with the lowest prestige within the military. You know, the highest prestige, obviously, are... Commanding things that involve nuclear weapons and you know then below it it would be big ships or fast airplanes and You know to actually have to command men to actually have to command troops is the lowest prestige of all And then of course at the end of your career if you've been commanding a high-tech weapon, then you can get a job with a defense contractor and have a huge retirement income so you know these officers don't want to be involved in counterinsurgency and they, along with the defense contractors, are going to fight to the death to be sure that none of these weapon systems ever get canceled. You know, so you get this paradox of George W. Bush, who in both his presidential campaigns talked a great deal about restructuring the military and in his eight years was only able to cancel one minor p- artillery weapon line. I mean, Obama had somewhat more success, but still, you know, most of the weaponry is totally useless for the wars the U.S. fought, fights, and soldiers really aren't trained in counterinsurgency. And then, yeah, I'll oh, go ahead.
1: And this is a this is a a, comp, a complementary explanation to another one that I've seen uh, elsewhere of the military Keynesianism and the efforts by defense contractors to locate production and, and contract, uh, contract out, um, key components from important congressional districts and, um, uh, rely on these, uh, other, uh, direct and indirect ways of influencing Congress to prevent cuts to these high tech systems that, as you say, are militarily useless for the types of wars that the U S finds themselves in. But this, um, military organization account of uh and and that focuses on these uh career incentives is is something i hadn't seen before and hadn't thought about before that's really yeah no that's
0: you know it's one of the surprises i found when i looked into this that and you know i don't think the military contractors on their own have the political power to prevent the cancellation of all these weapon systems that you know the top commanders have a high degree of prestige. And when they say, we need this weaponry, it's very hard for a president or Congress to go against that. And we see examples of that with the various arms control agreements. And when any president wants to get that through, it the only hope they have of getting the Senate to approve it is if the top generals testify saying this isn't a danger to national security. And the Price that they levy for doing that testimony, so the presidents have to agree to huge increases in the military budget, I mean, saw so that most recently with Obama, with the you know little treaty that he negotiated with Russia, the cost of it was he had to sign off on a nuclear modernization plan that's going to cost a trillion dollars right I mean, the only um, president and- who was able to double cross the military was Nixon but you know, Mm -hmm. Kennedy had agreed to stuff like that, you know, Carter, Reagan, you know, they all did.
1: Right. And, um, uh, the comparison that comes to mind, uh, of how the contractors use their connections with military officers to, uh, defend themselves against these budget cuts. Uh, it reminds me of how pharmaceutical companies, uh, enlist the support of doctors to help market and um, benefit from their expertise and their prestige as an occupation group in society to help them uh, promote their own interests, both in terms of policy and in terms of just marketing their output. Um, uh, I think that this is a a common strategy that we see in a lot of spheres in in the political economy. Um, And uh, so we've talked about how Um, The military organization and the career incentives of officers um, um, make it difficult to reorient the military to the um, types of wars that the U.S. is likely to fight. Uh, You also talk in your chapter on uh, military endeavors about um, how U.S. policies in occupied territories, uh, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan, undermine the US's ability to um, recruit local, um, I don't want to say lackeys necessarily, but local collaborators who are willing to um, um, support US policy objectives in some ways, uh, um, which as you say earlier on in the book, in, in uh, your, one of your theoretical chapters, a key uh, element of, of um, imperial statecraft is being able to uh, gain the support of local elites and local collaborators and incorporate them into the empire building project. Um, So what are, uh, what are the sources of these problems that the U S has had in um, failing to elicit local support for um, occupations, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan?
0: Well, I think it comes from the way in which American elites Approach these colonies, or, or they're not literally colonies, but the you know these lands that the U.S. has conquered and dominated. That during the Cold War era, you know, because of the system of regulation, and also because of you know real belief in Cold War ideology, that you know, American corporations you know were restrained in the way in which they got away with exploiting. In countries like Vietnam and the you know, competition with the Soviet Union created a real developmentalist approach to what the U.S. did in these countries, where they you know, poured in real foreign aid that was designed to you know, try to build up these economies. And of course, in Vietnam, the aid was overwhelmed by the bombing that the U.S. did. But nevertheless, in Vietnam, year after year, large amounts of money came in and it created economic openings for Vietnamese elites and, you know, it even, you know, went down to somewhat lower levels. So you had huge numbers of Vietnamese in the South who had an economic interest in the U.S. presence and would have lost lost out and did lose out once the U.S. finally was forced to withdraw.
1: So. Right. And uh, another example of this would be uh, South Korea, where, um, you know, internalist accounts of the success of the developmental state sometimes understate the importance of uh, U.S. and Japanese capital and um, uh, access to markets and technology provided by the U.S. and Japan um, uh, in promoting Korean Owned firms that were then able to become competitors of some of these American and Japanese companies that they uh, um, that they were learning from. And there's no uh, certainly, as you point out, in Ar- Iraq and Afghanistan, this dynamic of training potential competitors is not something the U.S. is interested in anymore, is it?
0: No, and you know, so while the U.S. offered you know in raw dollars u s aid to Afghanistan and Iraq was larger than in Vietnam, but it wasn't real developmental aid it, you know what a few people in those countries you know got enormous amounts of money that they you know received through control of the national banks or commercial banks in Afghanistan and Iraq. but that didn't go further down, so most Afghans and Iraqis gained nothing from the u s occupation and you know, the reconstruction projects weren't real reconstruction projects. They were totally corrupt. You had, you know, politically connected American companies like Halliburton getting these contracts, not doing the work, billing, you know, having their work never evaluated. And they just, you know, use this, you know, as a way of stealing money.
1: Right. And, um, what, what, the, uh, the part about Halliburton uh, made me think about is how the case against state-led development is that states, um, because of political connections uh, in the developing world, supposedly uh, are not going to monitor and observe uh, the companies that they give money to, and they're not going to be able to cut them, cut off firms who are not performing their end of the bargain or who are not competitive or efficient. Um, and it's this lack of the state autonomy to say no, that, um, the case for privatization is largely built on. And yet when we look at, um, the process for, uh, contract for supply contracts in Iraq, these exact, uh, um, you know, lack of state autonomy and cronyism, uh, are, are, are present, um, uh, it's really kind of a sick irony that this uh argument that we use to uh try to um prevent states in the third world from controlling their own industries are uh very much charges that we could use against our own government in their provision of services in these places,
0: yeah um, partly in their provision of services within the u s
1: <laughs> right absolutely. Um, use this phrase plunder uh, uh, neoliberalism to describe how um, um, uh, you know factories and uh, all sorts of social services, uh, water provision, and things like that were privatized in Iraq and Afghanistan and um, um, fell into the hands of, of many U.S. or other foreign-owned uh, firms um, and then have been totally unaccountable to local uh, customers or workers uh, um, who either consume these services or provide these services uh, as, as employees of these firms. I, when, when you said, when you talked about this plunder neoliberalism, my first thought was uh, Naomi Klein's idea of disaster capitalism and how in places like the New Orleans school system, uh, uh, was largely privatized after Hurricane Katrina and uh, subject to similar transfers to firms who had no, very thin uh, to non-existent degrees of, um, of, of uh, responsiveness and accountability to uh, local um, students or educators. There's a, a similarity here that I see. Um, yeah, definitely uh, she, you know, she between these two cases, it. except that the disaster in Iraq and Afghanistan was uh uh endogenous, shall we say, uh, unlike a natural disaster. Um yeah, so um so all in all uh the uh the military's organizational incentives for, for officers make it uh difficult to um Um, change direction and and invest more resources in preparing to fight uh, insurgencies, which is the type of war we're likely to have. And as long as we keep insisting on privatizing everything in places that we occupy, uh, it's going to be difficult to uh, elicit local support. Um, Turning back now to uh, your analysis of financialization, um, how has the growth of the financial... Uh, sector affected um, politics and the economy in the U.S.
0: Well, and, you know, I mean, first of all, it, as a, you know, the financial sector it, is a waste, it you know doesn't contribute anything productive to the economy, and you know, comparative research shows the bigger the financial sector, the lower the rate of real technological innovation or. Economic growth. If you, you know, have a system like the United States, where you know all the rewards are for people going to finance, so you have you know more and more of the smartest people, you know, getting jobs in finance rather than becoming doctors or scientists. That's going to affect you know, technological innovation and economic growth over the long term and you know you're also going to have more and more volatility that the people in the financial sector you know no longer you know have you know again careers matter they don't have careers that are structured around staying in the same partnership or bank over their entire careers they you know are there temporarily you know to the extent that they have a reputation it's. For their expertise in a particular sort of market that they can move from one firm to another. And, you know, they get rich by figuring out clever ways to manipulate markets and make sudden windfalls. And the same thing increasingly becomes true in firms outside the financial sector where you have the CEOs and top officers trying to manipulate the stock price so that they can, take advantage of stock options, cash in and get a huge pot of money. And then if the firm collapses later, it doesn't matter. They've made their money and they're out of there. And then the firm gets restructured and some other financier can step in. And we're going to be seeing that again now. They're going to be all of these corporations that go into bankruptcy need to be restructured because of the economic effects of, you know, the botched relief for, The coronavirus lockdown and, you know, most Americans are going to do terribly. But the ones who have capital and know how to manipulate these situations are going to make vast fortunes in the restructuring of these firms.
1: Right. Um, uh, So the big question for um, the U.S. maintaining its financial aspect of hegemony is um, how long the dollar is going to meet uh, be the global reserve currency and, and, uh, unit of, of, um, measure for transactions around the world. Um, because this, uh, 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 the dollar standard reinforces the position of, of, um, the, the U S financial system, uh, within the broader global economy, um, uh, as I was reading this section of your book, I thought about how and, and Crash Adam Tuse's history of the 2008 financial crisis, he talks about how um, during the 90s uh, and early to mid 2000s, um, the major economists and policymakers in the US were not looking at the real estate sector uh, or or um, this growing shadow banking sector. They were worried about the the soundness of the dollar and whether China and other countries who invested uh, large amounts of money in dollar based assets were going to lose faith in the U.S.'s ability to pay off its debts and um, uh, sell their do- and have a massive sell off of dollar assets in. Uh, the sovereign debt crisis to perhaps literally end all sovereign debt crises, right? Um, uh, what do you think about the the future of, of dollar hegemony? What would the end of, of, of the dollar system look like? Because um, 2008, despite being this huge financial crisis that brought the US financial system to its knees, ironically... Uh, strengthened the dollar system because of the rush to safety and the perceived security of U.S. Treasury notes uh, uh, after the crisis. Um, so U.S. government interest rates actually went down after a U.S.-based crisis, uh, which is something that would not happen in any other country in the world, certainly. Um, how how would uh, uh, the dollar system end and would it end in a big bang or a gradual reform?
0: I mean, I think for the foreseeable future, it's not going to end that, you know, in the 2008 crisis, the fed emerged as, you know, the global financial regulator, the only one that matters at all because they extended credit, not just to American financial firms, but European and Japanese. And in the current crisis, they're doing that again and on. scale. But you know, because the dollar is the global currency, the Fed has essentially, you know, an unlimited ability to generate more dollars and send them around the world. And you know, this certainly benefits the United States. And, you know, so, you know, Congress can pass, you know, one relief bill after another. They don't have to worry about the cost of it because you know it doesn't create a real Deficit that you know they issue these bonds. The Fed buys them. You know by law, any profit the Fed makes each year it has to give to the Treasury. So in essence, you know the Fed has these bonds. They pay the Treasury pays interest on them. To the Fed and then the Fed rebates the interest back to the Treasury. So you know these, these are sort of you know this is fake debt. You know it's owned by an entity in the United States. You know the. It's paying, you know, there's 0% real interest. So, you know, that can expand, you know, seemingly forever. And then the money that Fed makes loaning dollars out elsewhere in the world, the interest it gets from that goes to the Treasury. So this is profitable for the U.S. government. Well, why, you know, why would the rest of the world put up with this? Well, you know, for countries, it's not a good deal. But for elites in these other countries, it is a good deal. I mean, if we look at China... You know, the system they have where, you know, workers are badly paid, you know, where essentially, you know, their low wages are what are generating a trade surplus, you know, then ends up in the hands of the rich in China and, you know, high state officials who control these state-owned companies. And, you know, so as long as you have a, you know, the dollar is the world currency, China can keep generating these trade surpluses that, you know, then go into treasury notes without having to disrupt class relations within China. And, you know, that will only change if there's political change within China. The mass of people, you know, are able to demand that more of the resources, you know, go to their consumption or go to building up infrastructure, providing social benefits in China. And if we look elsewhere in the world, we see similar processes going on. And, you know, then if we look at Europe, you know, there the divisions within Europe, the advantage that Germany and the Netherlands get of having a single currency, which allows them to exploit the rest of Europe, and they don't want to give up these privileges in order to strengthen the euro, you know, create a European central bank that would then issue bonds for the entire European community. So, you know, if we go around the world, you know, these things are bad for other countries, but they're good for the elites within the country. It cements their economic privilege. So, you know, I don't see where the pressure is going to come from to end dollar hegemony. There'd have to be some sort of worldwide, you know, mass mobilization that would challenge elites and their economic privilege. That would be the end of dollar hegemony. That's certainly nothing that seems to be going on.
1: Right. Um, When you read the financial media uh, reporting about China and their political economy, I always see these glib uh, uh, remarks from commentators about, oh, you know, in order to keep their level of economic growth high, China just needs to rebalance its economy as though it's like flicking a switch or something, but they're underestimating the massive reorganization of the political economy and rebalancing of elite power, uh, um, both among elites and between elites and workers that would need to take place in order for such a rebalancing away from uh, uh, massive spending and investment and towards more consumption that, Uh, to happen. And um, I I think you're right. I just don't see that kind of thing happening uh, anytime soon. And also the level of international coordination between countries that would be necessary to come up with some kind of alternative uh, currency arrangement. Um, I remember talking to uh, a person I met who works in the financial sector—they uh, were talking about how oh, special drawing rights from the IMF are going to be the end of dollar hegemony. Well, who do you think runs the IMF? The 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 Treasury and the major European countries who have no incentive to uh, allow that to happen, and the amount of uh, collective action between China and Russia and a lot of these other countries that invest heavily in U.S. dollar assets uh, is just it's impossible to happen at least under current uh, geopolitical situation uh, circumstances
0: yeah i think that's exactly right
1: um okay well that's all the time we have thank you very much for uh joining me richard uh th- i was talking to richard lockman he's the author of first class passengers from uh, on a sinking ship elite power and the decline of uh, great powers thank thanks again for joining me that's from verso books uh, just came out earlier this year. Uh, I strongly recommend it. It's a really interesting book, uh, both for its history and for its analysis of US politics today. Um, uh, Thank you for listening to the World Affairs Podcast.